As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey everybody, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It is good to have you listening to us. It's good to good to be here with you. I'm putting putting with in air quotes because you know it's just a recorded file that you're listening to. But podcasts are weird, <laughs> like they you know that's this like uh, oddly intimate format mm. um, where we're sort of together in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's great great mm-hmm. to great to be together. Matt and Christy are here with me as well. I'm Ben. In case, if this is your first time listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, my name is Ben Sternke, mm-hmm. and I'm here with my co-hosts, Matt Tebby and Christy Penley. Nice to have you guys. Nice to see you guys. Yeah. It's good to be together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hi, Christy. Hey, hey. You know, Ben, you were talking, you know how like mm-hmm. if you watch TV oh, yeah. and you, you kind of feel like you know the characters on TV? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't. Right. You know, like you've never met them anyway. Right. Um, that's how I feel when I listen to other podcasts. Like yeah. I feel like I know yeah. different people, and then right. I realize I've and actually met, met, ever met life. them. Yeah. This is a, but and listeners, it's even better if, than TV characters because these yeah. are real people. We're real people. We're not. Yeah. We're not actors pretending yeah. to be Christine. Well, Kendall. and my invitation is anybody who comes to Colorado Springs, you. That's true. You like email Gravity, mm-hmm. and I will uh-huh. meet you for coffee. It's like not, I want to meet people. That's true. Yeah. It was really true. She'll probably invite you to stay at her house for a month. <laughs> yes, that's well. also true. I have a guest room. There's a guest room. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. that, that reminds me, Christy. I, I when you said uh, we we think we know these people, right? Uh, I was thinking like when I was when we were growing up, it was like Ross and Rachel from Friends, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. And and then and then in the in the last right. twenty years, it was like Jim and Pam. 
Like everybody's everybody participated in Jim and Pam's romance on The Office, right? I'm wondering if there's other if there's other now. Obviously, um, I think these are like these are like stereotypically white sitcoms, right? But I'm wondering if there's other TV shows where you feel like you know this person and they're like a part of your life because you how much you like them. Can you think of other Mm. Ted Lasso? Okay, Mm. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Ted. (laughs) <laughs> there are times where you know, like yeah. I, I had to sub coach my my girls' soccer team this fall, mm. like twice. Mm. And right before it was like halftime, my husband like patted me on the back. And he's like, "Give a lasso pep talk," you know. Like it just <laughs> became like, you know, yeah. what could I say that like yeah. makes them get inspired? You, you actually yeah. do channel some lasso, Christy. I will say there's yeah. at least some two <laughs> main differences. Uh, mm-hmm. You have way fewer corny jokes. And mm-hmm. that's good. And substantially less lip hair. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Those are two main differences that yeah. I can just immediately you think of. You guys, but you do channel. You guys, lip hair. Can I just say? Yeah. Oh. My husband went from Movember right uh-huh. into Mo December. I don't even know what you call it. I was like, you guys. I was like, Paul. It's not Movember anymore. Shave it off. Mm-hmm. Shave it off, please. That's yeah. what I'm asking for for Christmas, people. Yeah. I'm just asking that my husband clean, goes back to normal face hair, not the, the mustache. Yeah. Okay. Do you know you're fine with face hair? You just can't be a yeah. Just, he has like a goatee and stuff, and I'm fine okay. with that. But okay. grow the goatee back to match yeah. it is what I need mm-hmm. him to do. Yeah. Do okay. you, Christy? Do you remember the cartoon Snoopy? Remember Snoopy? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Snoopy's brother? He, <laughs> no. He lived, Does he have a mustache? He lived out in the desert. His name was Spike, <laughs> and he had this. He had like oh, I'm looking it up. Four mustache. whiskers that hung down like this. <laughs> oh, I totally do know You're that. Right? Now you say that. That's so funny. <laughs> Paul kind of looks like Spike. <laughs> <laughs> See, grow the goatee back, yeah, Paul, please. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think a, you know, like a I'm Ted start Lasso. Calling him Spike, Ooh, yeah, and he's not go. gonna know why. And then get him a T-shirt for Christmas with Spike. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, like like somebody with facial hair like Jason Sudeikis can pull off like a like a Ted Lasso kind of Magnum PI kind of mustache. Oh, such a beautiful like, lip you know, full. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, if you've got wispy facial hair, mm-hmm. maybe maybe yeah, don't go with the mustache. Okay, Ted Lasso. So. Ben, do you have one? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking like the, um, so two things are interesting to me about this. One, uh, because of like Netflix and streaming and all this like niching of all the TV shows, like we don't have, there's not like broadcast television shows that everybody tunes in for very much anymore Mm. um, because, you know, there's all these streaming services. So I thought, I found that interesting. I I wonder if there's going to be fewer and fewer of those sort of cultural iconic shows yeah, right ted lasso is one it has become one but yeah. you know you like you have to you can't just turn on your tv on thursday nights you got to subscribe to apple whatever you know and so anyway so i was thinking about that and then i was also thinking about i think the uh the length of the like friends you mentioned and uh, <clears throat> the, the office, office yeah have like multiple seasons so we lived with these characters 10 for, years for like years, a decade you know yeah yeah Right. Yeah. So it, it's remarkable then that Ted Lasso has only been two seasons and already sort of burned uh, himself into our consciousness. Yeah. Uh, but I would say Parks and Rec, some of the characters from Parks and Rec um, uh, are w- ones that are near and dear to my heart. I mean, the, 
Like almost all of them. <laughs> almost all the characters. I just love them all. Yeah. They're um, all my friends. They're yeah. all my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So You know, I'm thinking about my wife. Especially Ron Swanson. My wife. Uh, yeah, Ron. Speaking of mustaches. My wife um, rewatched the show Gilmore Girls just oh, so yeah. she could like enjoy the relationship between mom and daughter, which, you know, is a bit. Aww. Yeah. But I think she would say like those two characters, she feels like she knows them. Um, mm. But if I had to pick two that I feel like I know and we'd be friends, probably uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad. and <laughs> He seems like a real charmer. But, uh, a real Ted Lasso. Buster Bluth from Arrested Development. I feel like the three of us, would we would have some sort of caper. What if we could have a podcast? It would be juice. The three of you. <laughs> juice. Unlimited juice. Oh, oh gosh. Man. Well, uh, I'm not sure how we actually introduce this podcast now. Yeah, I don't know. There's no there's good no, segue. No, no good segue. Yeah, it's the middle. It's the middle of Advent, and uh, we ended up talking about TV shows. We did, but we're going to talk. We're, this this episode is great uh, with Hillary McBride. Um, yeah, she is a she's the real deal, guys. Yeah, I, she knows what she's talking about. She does. She does. I I told her on the recording that I'd been waiting for a book that takes all the things I've been learning about the body and puts it in one place and makes it accessible. Um, and doesn't it doesn't lose any of its profundity. It doesn't become too simplistic. And so uh, her book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living, uh, is sort of a compendium of all these different aspects of how our body gets ignored or erased or uh, silenced or, or scripted or storied in ways that are unhelpful and how we can reclaim our body as a place of knowing, as a place of identity, as a place of spirituality. You know, um, and so I, I don't know. I think I think one of the biggest things that I'm learning right now is the amount of suffering I experience through my lack of embodiment. And um, anyway, she was really gracious with her time. This is a wonderful book, and uh, yeah. yeah, I can't wait awesome. to share this interview with you all. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was really uh, profound. She's. And she really knows what she's talking about, um, but also also just so, um, I don't know, gentle and compassionate. Mm-hmm. That uh, That's a quality that when I see it in people, I just, more and more, I'm like, that's it. That's that's it. That's what yeah. I want. So, yeah. Um, yes. Uh, one quick blurb before we get into it. Um, if you are not, listeners, if you're not signed up for our um, weekly email, we get send out curated links to articles that we found helpful or interesting for people like you who want to root their life and their leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus, go ahead and sign up for that. It's at gravityleadership.com slash join, and you'll get uh, several emails from us just introducing us to you. And then every Friday, get an email with uh, links and resources and all kinds of good stuff. Mm -hmm. So join us. Yeah. We'd love to have you. All right. All right. All right. We good to go, guys? Anything else yeah. to say? Hit that, smash that like button. Wait, is this smash is that the that right subscribe platform? Button. Smash, yep. Okay, good. Yeah, just, I'm doing it right. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah, it's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> all right. Here's here's Hillary. Dr. Hillary McBride, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm so happy to be with you here. 
Thank you for having me. You may recognize Hillary's voice. She uh, helped co-host the Liturgist podcasts uh, for several seasons. She's also a licensed therapist, uh, researcher, and a speaker who specializes in embodiment. And that's actually what we're doing today. You've written a book on the body called The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and connection through embodied living. Before we jump into all the swirling thoughts I have and want to hear you <laughs> on, Hillary, are there other things about you that we could know? Oh my goodness. Well, I think it's important whenever someone writes a book on something and appears to be an expert, and especially when you have you know lots of graduate level training and degrees and credentials and things like that, it's so easy to assume that we know all of the things that we need mm-hmm. to know about about the something that it, we're writing about. And I would rather position myself as someone who's really dedicated to learning, but doesn't really know all of the things and doesn't anticipate that I ever could and hopes to keep keep reading and keep writing and keep learning. And, and I want, I wanted to write a book that would inspire people to start the process of doing that in them, in themselves, in their own lives. And so I want, what I want to say about myself and about the writing of this book is I hope it's the beginning of some Mm. things. And I hope that we, we take the things that are interesting for us about the content and take it further and critique it and add more ideas and write more and share more and experience more. And that's certainly something that I want to do. So I'm, I am very much in process of learning how to live and really drill all of this down into the fiber of my being. Um, and so want to hopefully relieve myself and relieve anyone of the expectation that I know all of the things about this. Yes. Isn't that a wonderful relief to not have to be the body mm-hmm. PhD expert. Right. <laughs> yeah. And how uh, could you be? Because it's the body of all things. I mean, you'll see this when you read the book, for those of you who haven't, and I'm sure that the two of you have encountered this already, all of the different slices that we can take of encountering the body are just um, so multifaceted. There's so many layers to this. There's theological, so, so, sociological, political, psychological, medical, I mean, mm. narrative. There's just all the different ways that this can intersect. So how could any one person be the expert? Certainly not me. Right. And that comes across in the book, Hillary, the way that you, it's not necessarily a, a, a personal travelogue, but you mm-hmm. describe, uh, maybe to make a really bad pun that just popped in my head and I don't have time to filter it out. It's sort of an autobiography <laughs> of, yes. like, of like love it. you coming to terms. <laughs> it's almost like, so I guess maybe the first question here, and this gets at a little uh-huh. bit of how you tell your story. How did we get to a place as human creatures, so estranged and hostile mm. to our own bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way I'll answer that, I, I have to catch myself because I want to say, look at what the kind of Western, white supremacist, highly disembodied philosophical, theological resources are that have impacted us as a culture. But I, I want to step back and remind myself and all of us as listeners that not all people experience disembodiment across the globe. There is mm. definitely something that happens where the body intersects with different political narratives and different faith traditions and different cultural contexts, which make it easier or harder to be in the body. So I am speaking about a very specific cultural subset in which we have 
narratives that have predated you know, our Christian sacred scriptures that have told us that what matters about being a human is the mind, that what matters about existence is being as close to God and as pure as possible, and thus we need to leave the perils of the flesh, the the lusts, the pains, the the limitations, the pleasures, the, yeah. the pleasures exactly right, and those those are considered to be problematic often, right? So pleasure has been tainted as this you know thing that gets in the way of our purity, spiritual, physical, whatnot. So we have all of these stories. I mean, Plato, Descartes, Gnosticism. I think the the narratives about body hierarchies, white supremacy, patriarchy, all of those things go hand in hand and colonization. And we we just kind of don't even realize that that's what's playing out in the background of our lives. And we, as bodies born in this time period, don't have to be taught those specific stories. Mm. They have, they are, we're swimming in them. We're swimming in the cultural water of those stories mm. such that, we are even born embodied, but we lose that in this culture. It's kind of groomed out of us as we learn how to be good, how to be in control, how to perform mm. being human in the way that is most desirable and most rewarded by our culture. And all of that is playing in the background. But we just think we're growing up. We just think we're becoming adults. We just think we're um, being the good the good person, the good Christian. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the way this book is titled, The Wisdom of Your Body, sort of confronts us with maybe the other scripts we have, the danger mm -hmm. of our body, the, ina the inadequacy exactly. of our body, the pain of our body, uh -huh. um, the uh, exploitation even, or the oppression of our body. Mm -hmm. um, you, you deal with, in each chapter, you deal with a different aspect of where, again, speaking from a my social location, which is similar mm -hmm. in many ways to yours, the complications between, we could maybe say our relationship to our bodies. Um, and one of them is in one of the chapters, you talk about being raised uh, as a Christian or in a Christian home in the mm -hmm. church, and some of the complications that created for you as you, uh, in your relationship with your body. Could you talk about that a bit? How did the Christian tradition make it more difficult for you to accept the wisdom of your body? Mm -hmm. I think I think in the context that I was in, because this is certainly not every Christian tradition and this is certainly not every faith tradition, that there was a story about the flesh being antithetical or at odds to what the Spirit was doing, that somehow the flesh or being a body compromised the work of God in the world and through me. And that... Um, I think I was introduced to a schism, especially we see that in the language, the flesh-spirit dichotomy. You are not of the flesh. You are of the spirit. You are not, essentially don't be your body because your body gets in the way of what is good and right and what God is doing. And so there's this, this very explicit, it's not even hidden and it's really on the nose, these kind of interpretations of scripture that make us think that our body, and like you said already, Matt, the pleasures of the body are something that we need to really control because they are a liability. They need to be subdued in order for us to retain proximity to God. And I don't, as I like, I, as I've been really researching what scripture is actually saying and how to interpret it differently. 
I, I had to come to terms with the fact that I had been very angry at the writings of Paul for mm. a very long time because I was standing in opposition to what I had been told Paul said. And what I had been told that Paul said was that your body is bad and hadn't ever really come to the text myself, not having been trained in hermeneutics or, or you know, Greek interpretation, I didn't realize that that's probably not actually what Paul was saying all along. But we have, in the faith tradition I grew up in, imposed our cultural values on our scriptural hermeneutic and taken these biases that were given by culture at large and, f- and filtered through what is actually happening in Scripture to reinforce the ideas that we already had believed. Mm. So there's this kind of like layers and layers and layers of undoing that have been happening for me, like the layer of undoing, no, 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 my body is not bad. And wow, I'm really angry at this scripture that says that. And then another layer of undoing, oh my goodness, I don't think that's actually what scripture was saying. And I think that there's a lot of people who hate the body who are reading that into scripture. Oh, maybe Paul meant something else. And then I think coming around another layer of seeing all of the ways that that our faith tradition, that our scripture actually reinforces that the body is good and and is is part of God's way of being in the world. In fact, we can just simply, very concretely look at the incarnation as the center of the Christian faith and say, that's pretty good evidence that being a body is important to God's plan in the world. Right. And it's, it's something God was willing to do and wanted to do uh, out of mm. love to, be, to become embodied. Right, yeah. 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 Like yeah, you actually spend some time unpacking what Paul is actually saying with Sarks mm-hmm. and with uh, spiritual, uh, and I, I, we won't go into it here, but suffice it mm-hmm. to say that uh, it's a helpful reframing, Hillary, because I think these messages, at least in my experience, we absorb them and just operate uncritically out of them. And then some of us, I think rightfully so, in order to get free of them, we, you know, like you said, like a shoe Paul and just sort of push him away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then others of us, like you, are doing the work of retrieval and reclamation that I think helps us then learn how to inhabit the Christian story faithfully in a more healthy mm-hmm. way with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. the hope. And I, I actually... I'm not really as skilled as so many others. This is not my area of main discipline, but there are lots of people out there who have been in maybe less accessible ways saying this for a very long time. But this is kind of one of the problems of academia and the way that we, in very head-centered disciplines, disconnect or create chasms between common knowledge and this kind of elitist knowledge is that people Mm -hmm. have been saying this for a very, very long time about Paul, but it doesn't really filter down to the lay community. It didn't filter down to me as a person just kind of going to church on Sundays, I had to speak with several people who have PhDs in Pauline theology and read their resources and wade through that to get to this new understanding. It's like, where are the places that we can make knowledge about scriptural interpretation more accessible for the everyday Bible reader? Yeah. Yeah. And and this is just one small part of your overall project to sort of name the layers of complications or, or the layers mm-hmm. of possibilities of ways we right. need to affirm connection or reconnect. Um, you talk about uh, trauma 
You talk about mm-hmm. image. You talk about feelings and the emotion, mm-hmm. emotional center of our life. Um, you talk about um, p- how our bodies are political, how they are social mm-hmm. entities, and they're arranged in hierarchies, and they they're coded and scripted to to tell a story about power or no mm-hmm. power. Um, yeah. As as you wrote these these various chapters, was there one in particular that surprised you or was most important to you mm. personally as you seek to recover the wisdom of your body? Mm-hmm. This, this book has been in a series of different forms as a manuscript. And one of them... Well, maybe I'll say this a different way. I had written most of the book before I had two very serious car accidents back to back. And that ended up being a very central focus of the trauma chapter in this book. Because as a trauma clinician, I work and sit with trauma all day long. I have lots of experience and stories from other people and the working with other people that had a kind of an intellectual understanding, but it wasn't really until maybe a couple, two, three months um, before I was to be done the writing of the manuscript of this book that I got in these two very serious car accidents and ended up getting a PTSD diagnosis from one of them. And, and it was the writing of my personal narrative of the trauma and the working through of the trauma that really shifted in something in me because, and this is the way that writing goes when you're writing a book, you write a manuscript then you get a new idea, you add it in, you send it off to the editor, it comes back, you're a different person because you've had different life experiences, you see it differently, new things have happened. And as I was writing the book, my healing from the trauma was in process. And so every time I was reading that chapter and then writing new elements to it, I was noticing how my body in response to the reading and writing was responding differently. So different things based on what I'd written previously would stand out to me and I'd Oof, I'd have anxiety just reading it. Mm. Or, you know, and down the road, I'd read something that had previously given me anxiety to write or read, and I felt so much compassion for myself. So the fact that there was all of these different fragmented, time-stamped moments of reading and writing and experiencing and healing, and they were all woven into this chapter, when I hold it now in my hands, it feels thicker and richer and more painful and more beautiful than it would ever for the reader because it to me is this catalog of all of the healing work that I did in the process and of course this I think this is what happens when we write is there's just so much of us in it that the reader will never know and then there will also conversely be things that people read into the writing that I have no idea about and it touches them and it resonates with them. And as the writer, I'll have no idea how well it lands or how how off it is for them or whatever. But the way that it, you know, really when I th- even think about certain parts of that chapter, they, they take me back to moments in therapy mm-hmm. uh, or moments when I felt myself heal or change. It it for me will be such an important way of capturing so much healing and pain in a very particular season of my life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost, you're you're describing Hillary. um, It sounds like a process. I don't know. I'm just reflecting on this. Sometimes we think about a book as a collection of ideas as a very abstract thing. 
mm-hmm. as something of the mind, and it is, you know, mm-hmm. a, a product of I. That's what that's what language is. Um, but you're describing a very embodied process of of mm-hmm. those ideas coming to fruition on the page, um, and then also describing the fact that those ideas, as other people, other bodies, other people reading them. They're, those ideas are going to interact with their embodied experience in various ways and, and hit mm-hmm. them in new ways. And it's going to kind of refract and expand right. uh, from that place. And so anyway, that, that was just an interesting, I don't know, reflection on at least, especially your experience, your very sort of embodied experience of mm-hmm. writing and editing this book. Absolutely. And this, like, this is something that is emerging in the field of cognitive science, but the idea that cognition itself, language itself is even embodied is really yes. helpful for us for understanding why when when we're reading someone else's words and they are staying up here in this kind of cerebral space, we're, we're taking them in through our ocular nerve, they're hitting certain parts in our brain, we're interpreting them and we have a felt reaction. Or when I am living through something in a body, it changes the words that I write. Like we have, we have thought of cognition as disembodied because that is the way that we in our culture approach most things from a disembodied place. But right. even the neuroscience now is telling us right. that cognition itself is a bodily process, right. yes. which is just it's so exciting and mind blowing, and of course, like affirming of of all the things that we're that we're talking about here. Yes. Yes. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. I've, uh, I've started seeing a new therapist who practices a kind of therapy called Hako- Hakomi. Hakomi. Do you know mm-hmm. Hakomi? I do know Hakomi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a somatic mindfulness kind of, uh, and he'll say mm-hmm. things to me like, I'm going to say this to you, and then I want you to tell me how you experience it in your body. Mm-hmm. And I think he's he's working through some of the insights you're talking about, that we aren't, our, our brains haven't, uh, aren't carried around by this package of meat, but mm-hmm. our, our actual, our, our, our brain is all throughout our body, Mm-hmm. And and we need that. We have to re-recruit and reconcile with not just the you know s- seven and a half inches above our shoulders, but mm-hmm. but everything. Um, I you were you you wrote uh, early on in the book. You write about the lies we believe about our body, mm-hmm. and I was reminded when I was reading this chapter, Hillary, that uh, I don't know what provoked this for me, but I began to become aware. So most of our listeners know I'm a able-bodied white cisgendered man, um, I and I don't have, I don't consider myself attractive, but I also don't have anything about me that our culture scripts as unattractive. So I, I've really never mm-hmm. thought about body image 
it's never really been a conscious thing for me. But right. I, but I, I started noticing these little stories I told about my body, little little microaggressions mm. against my body, mm. and I, I had this moment of just um. I don't know if it was uh, courage or desperation, but in my journal, I wrote down these little stories I tell. Mm, I went from the wow. top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and I had two and a half pages, Hillary, wow. of like wow. self-recrimination uh-huh. that lives in me all the time. Right. But I, I just want to have access to it. Uh-huh. Um, I wonder if you could speak a bit about these these scripts or these stories that we have that actually are, are sort of... I don't know how you describe it. Sometimes I say like they live in our bones or they're in mm-hmm. our operating systems. They kind of live up below mm-hmm. the waterline of awareness, but yes. then they impact the degree to which we can be at home in ourselves. Yeah. How do you, how do you yeah. think about that? Yeah. Well, I alluded already to the cultural water that we swim in. Like I, I think in, I can't remember where it is somewhere in the book. I talk about this, um, quote from David Foster Wallace that he uses in a commencement speech where he's introducing the idea of this fish, you know, the, these two fish that are, they're there chatting with each other. I guess what do fish do? Blah, blah. They're having a conversation somehow. An older fish swims up and says, hey boys, how's the water? And swims off. And the two fish look at each other and say, what the hell is water? We have this this substance, cultural substance that we are swimming in that we don't even know is there because most of the time, like you said, it happens below our kind of conscious awareness. And yet it is woven into all of the interactions that we have, the way that media tells us what is good, Mm. the purchase of the products that we kind of enjoy or are driven towards, um, some of the choices we make around the foods that we eat, the way that we evaluate ourselves, how we present ourselves when we are hoping to be in a romantic connection, um, the the private inner thoughts, the posture. I mean, the number of people that I've worked with in therapy who were taller than their peers growing up and they stuck out or were had people commented on their body. And so they would hunch their shoulders in photographs or be small so that they didn't stand out in a way that felt painful for them. And then now chronically have postural issues as a result of that, right? Mm-hmm. There's just a million little things that are happening around us that are shaping how we are in our bodies or how hard it is to be in our bodies. And it takes a consciousness-raising effort, usually that's interpersonal as well, because it's really hard to see all the things that we can't see. We usually need some help to see some of these things. But when we start to raise consciousness around it and start to engage in media literacy in particular, and we start to see where these stories come from, and again, Mm. media is not the problem. Media is the vehicle for communicating broader cultural ideas. So we see it really clearly in media there is something that becomes really scary about how like kind of inoculated we are against the the toxicity of all of these things how yeah. many messages we got from an early age before we could think critically and then how they were just reinforced around us so one of the things that i don't talk about at length in this book but i talk about in my first book mothers daughters and body image which was my master's research around how narratives of bodies are passed down between women what we saw is that there's a very particular cultural script that you use to create social proximity, which is one of the main ways of reinforcing some of these 
narratives about bodies. So Mimi Nietzsche calls this fat talk. And the idea is that we build closeness and connection, particularly when you're socialized into girlhood and womanhood, by shaming your body. So an example of that would be, you know, two women meet at a coffee shop and they're standing in line and, you know, it just, I'd be so curious to hear if listeners recognize this dialogue as I'm describing it, but just imagine you're standing behind two women in a coffee shop and they're bantering, they're catching up, they're about to get something at the till and someone says, oh, that really looks good. And the other person goes, oh, you know, I was, I, I'm bad. I can't, you know, I was bad last night. I had to, you know, extra dessert. So I'm not going to, I can't have that. But like, oh, did you see how many calories are in it? And, you know, then someone else says like, oh, I've been really needing to diet lately because the holidays are coming up and, I, you know, all of the things that go into monitoring my diet. And then someone else says, oh, but you don't, you know, you, you don't have anything to worry about. You should really see what I've been doing. And we downplay what the other person is saying and shame ourselves so that we put the other person at ease. I mean, there's this whole script that uses diet culture mentality and anti-fat rhetoric to build closeness with other people. We want to make the other person feel better about how they feel bad about their body. And so we put our own body down. And this is like a this is a very obvious version of one of the, the subtle things that happens on a day-to-day basis between us and other people where we are constantly evaluating our body in comparison to somebody else. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this, but some of those stories are, you know, bodies have to be small to be good, except if you're a man and then you need to have a body that's big and but also svelte and kind of yes. sculpted. Right? You need to have a uh, body that is sexualized, um, but not too sexualized because then you become a problem. Your body becomes a problem. Your body needs to be thin. Right? Your, uh, your body needs to be able to be good. Yes. Uh, right? There's, I mean, your body needs to be white. It needs to be controlled. There, there are so many ways. Your body needs to conform to the gender binary right? that matches the sex that you were assigned at birth, like there are just so many ways that this happens. And, and I think it really can become kind of overwhelming when we start to deconstruct all of the intersecting ideas that pull us away from what I want people to know, what I think is inherently true, which is that all bodies are good. That's it. Just, they're all good, just mm. as they are. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, some, that's a, a reality I'd wish on my friends, Hillary. Mm. that they would consider the the space that they take up whether they want to or not as good mm-hmm. and could affirm and embrace and receive that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you touch on here that I feel the least competent, so Ben and I, we, we pastor a church together, we, we lead gravity together, and one of the areas that we've talked about repeatedly tackling in our church, but we haven't been able to get our hands around how to do it well in a way that doesn't just ruin everybody's lives, <laughs> is, <laughs> is talking about our our relationship to our sexuality mm-hmm. and, and our bodies, that our bodies are, are created to be sexual and sensual. And the, uh, a lot of people um, get various messages about their sexuality, about their, about their, um, their you know, their, their gender, their... Um, their sensuality and how their body connects to that. You reference in the book kind of 
having to having to recover a bit from the story you learned in church about sexuality and your body and having to reconstruct maybe a more livable, faithful way of inhabiting your body as a creature who has sensuality and sexuality and not have to deny or repress that. Could you maybe give us a bit of uh, guideposts on that journey? Like, what was that like for you Mm. and how have you navigated that as Mm. not just a therapist, but as like, you know, a woman? Yeah. Two things really stand out for me. Um, one of them is having having grown up in purity culture, and I would say because I had therapist parents who were critical thinkers, mm. that there wasn't the same kind of um, rigidity and shame that I know some people experience, although that purity culture narratives were very much a part of the faith community that I was in. I got to university and I did I went to a Christian university. So there was lots of conversation in the college age crowd about how to navigate these sexual tensions. And I remember having kind of a light bulb moment where many of my peers had been reading, you know, the Joshua Harris book, the I Kiss Dating Goodbye, all of the all of the things that suggested abstinence until marriage would equal extraordinary fulfilling, extraordinarily fulfilling sexual encounters which of course had to be heterosexual and had to be monogamous and they had to be kind of within the confines of marriage. So I remember having this awareness that it didn't make sense that we would say some part of our interaction with someone that we love is bad. And then there would be this wedding, there would be a ceremony, you would have a party, and then you would have intercourse and it would be satisfying when you had no prior experience when something was totally new for you, Mm -hmm. when you were new to each other in that way and that it would be the most satisfying encounter of your life. Like there's just no way that that makes sense in any other domain of our life. (laughs) So, you know, if I'm going to, you know, never have a vulnerable conversation with someone where I disclose something painful about myself Mm -hmm. and then I do it on the biggest night of my life, knowing that everybody knows that's going to happen. And then I tell them everything about my life and I let them into this most painful experience of my life. And they have no idea because they've never talked about things, vulnerable things too, that it's going to go well. Like we, we know reasonably mm-hmm. if we take another facet of the human experience and we map it onto, or we map the ideas we've had about sexual purity onto the other domains, it doesn't translate. It's doesn't just happen. unhealthy. It's bizarre. It doesn't make sense. And so I started to really think, wait a second. I think I think that we set ourselves up for shame. And then, I mean, another part mm-hmm. of that was why no wonder it's hard for people after getting married and having sex for the first time to feel like that's painful or it's uncomfortable or they feel insecure in themselves because they have no experience. You can't just say something is bad, 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 therefore save it for the person you love. Like <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Why would so they want I it? really, exactly. <laughs> and why would it be into Why would you all of a sudden be able to relax into it? And yeah. we know from kind of our systems of understanding sexual arousal and what's happening physiologically in the body around sexuality that you need, you need activation. You need to be able to lean into something at the same time as you feel at ease in your body for sexuality to be an experience that is pleasurable. If there is a shutting down that's happening because of, you know, a particular nerve branch that says, this is bad, make it go away. 
like the shutting down inhibits your ability to feel arousal and arousal is a really important part of pleasure and enjoyment and a kind of proximity seeking behavior. So these things of like shut it down and it has to be perfect in no way make for positive sexual experiences. And then I think if we add to that, another experience that I had was realizing in sexual activity with my partner that I was getting experiences of my body that were pleasurable in such a way that made me realize my body was good, that my body was not this place Mm. that just held trauma, that just Mm. held shame, that just held insecurity, that my body actually in this very innate wordless way wanted to experience these wonderful sensations and wanted to share them with somebody. And it was part of the sharing with somebody and the uncovering of what pleasure could be like in my body that was actually part of my healing from an eating disorder. Because my body up until that point had been this thing that I needed to control and make go away. And then all of a sudden, my sexual activity was a route back in to know maybe my body is is also part of enjoying being alive. Mm-hmm. And so there are lots of people who have um, eating disorders who really struggle with sexual activity because s- sexuality is body. That's it's that's it. Yes. Full stop. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And to be in an eating disorder is to be very disembodied and controlling of the body, even though we're obsessed with the body. It's a kind of disembodied, fragmented obsession. But for me, those two experiences, one in college and then one having sexual experiences were a really part of the reorganizing of saying, well, maybe if I believe that my body was created by God and is good and that my body is part of creation, then maybe my sexuality is good too. And maybe I need to start rethinking some of these ideas that I had. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's almost this, you mentioned this, this strategy of controlling our bodies, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's... Um, keeping food from it or staying abstinent from sex, mm-hmm. sexual activity as a as a way to overcome it to to mm-hmm. to maybe even try to become transbodied um, mm-hmm. meaning a separate above rise above it right yeah. and i think this is a strong it's a strong stream in the christian tradition that the body is something to overcome Mm-hmm. Um, it, but in this book too, you sort of re, you sort of draw us back into the Christian tradition. We've already talked about this and saying that that's not that's not the only thing the Christian tradition has to say about the body. Um, but then maybe as we get closer to the end here, I wonder for many of us, like facing and befriending our bodies is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's we've experienced mm-hmm. trauma there or deep shame there, or um, Social scripts teach us to hate or mistrust or want to get rid of our bodies. Um, and in this book, one of the powerful things we haven't talked about is that you, in every chapter, give us accessible practices to be reintroduced to our bodies, to sort of, <laughs> to reacclimate mm. to our space and being in the world. Mm-hmm. Could, could you maybe give us some hope? Like, what? why are practices important to begin to um, reclaim our body as sacred 
and the mm-hmm. wisdom that's there? And how, do, how does that actually help us? How does that work? Mm-hmm. It would be so nice if I could give people an intellectual map of becoming embodied and that that would be enough. But the irony or the beauty of this is that our body is asking us to be in experience, not just in ideas. Our body is the kind of always available to us through sensation, through the present moment, through encounters with our sensuality in some way. And and it's not, I might even go so far as to say, I don't think it's enough to just think differently about our body. That isn't necessarily going to be what helps us inhabit ourselves. It's going to be having experiences. But sometimes we don't know how to do that because mm-hmm. we've gotten so disconnected from ourselves that maybe we can change our ideas about the body, but we don't know how to translate that down into a, a felt lived reality. So these are like... Um, some, you know, sometimes those like questions that people ask on first dates, the the practical or uh, experiential equivalent of that, like date yourself, date your body again, like get to know yourself by trying some of these experiments, try noticing what happens when you do this, try noticing what happens when you do this. And here in my language, I say try and noticing, right? There is something very important about thinking about this as an experiment that doesn't have to go perfectly and then seeing what happens and getting to know yourself through these little experiments in such a way that you aren't just practicing something, but you are becoming more of yourself because you are getting data Mm -hmm. about who you are and what's hard for you and what you like as you dip into these experiments. So my hope is that, again, like I mentioned, actually, when we started, that this is not just a thing that lives in the page. The book is not just a thing that lives in the pages of the book, but becomes a way that you reconnect to yourself as the reader by coming home to your body. And hopefully these exercises will be gentle invitations to do that. Yeah. Speaking of gentle invitations, Mm -hmm. one of the practices that impacted me greatly was you have this, you you um, invite us to gently touch a place mm-hmm. on your body and thank that part of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, honestly, I, I wept, Hillary. Like, mm. it just, it, I wept because of, first of all, sort of my, there's a baseline sort of, this is cheesy kind of repulsion. Like, to talk to my body and be kind to it. Like there's some kind of toxic um, mm. something in me that that feels like I hope nobody sees this. Yeah. But then another layer is why have I never done that before? Mm. And why does why is there so much resistance? And then why when yeah. I do it do I feel so vulnerable? You know. Um, and I, there are dozens of of exercises or practices like this through the book that actually arrest us. They can, they help us confront the disenchantment with our body, the disembodiment mm-hmm. with our body. And we don't, I think it's an undiscovered country. Like we don't even know what we're missing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You said that so well, especially when we've learned to live without full connection to ourselves and have actually been rewarded for that. Hmm. It can be surprising to us to realize that there is a kind of um, diso- cultural disobedience that has to happen as we come back into our body, but it takes us into more fullness, that there was even more that we didn't know 
that yes. was there that we didn't experience. Yes, we are transgressing mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. cultural mm-hmm. scripture yeah. when we get embodied for yes, for Western exactly. white people. Um, Hillary, I, I told you before we hit record, I think every chapter could be a book on mm-hmm. its own. And mm-hmm. in fact, I've been chasing books in these various chapters trying to piece together uh, why do I hate mm-hmm. my body so much and what do I do about it um, mm-hmm. and you, I've been looking for your book for 10 years and mm. it's a it's a beautiful gift it I Thank think you. if I think if enough people take what you've written seriously and put it into practice like we could actually change the world um, things could things could change um, where can people find you Hillary if they want to connect with you um, maybe mm online or other places where are you hanging out sure uh on instagram hillary liana mcbride on twitter hillary l mcbride and then uh my website hillary but thank you so much matt for saying all of that i really appreciate it yes uh hillary it was uh, great to have you with us um great mm-hmm. to uh, be able to connect uh, about your book today mm-hmm. and uh, we'll put all that uh, stuff in the show notes it's really great thank you great. for sharing this with us today. You're welcome. And Matt, I should add, I don't know if anyone, if you have seen, I'm sure you've seen it because you sound thorough as a, as a reader. Um, but there are lots of references in the back of the book, um, things that I pulled from, but also places that people can go when they want even more resources. Mm -hmm. So every chapter I think has maybe 10 to 15 different books that you could go read if you wanted to read more about that topic. Lots lots more reading to do. Yes, Yes, I've been circling them. Thanks, (laughs) Hillary. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.